You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Right, I'll pray and then we'll get into the action. Father, we thank you so much that um, you love to spend time with us. You're more glorious than we can possibly understand. You are worthy of all of our praise. And yet you love to pour your grace on us. And what better way to show it than Jesus on the cross. God, we are in awe of you this morning. We ask that um, as I bring this word this morning, that it would be faithful to what you want people to hear. Spirit, fill me, I pray. Fill us all to submit to your word. And that it wouldn't just be kind of half an hour of um, interesting stuff, but that it would be life-changing that after today that um, uh, we would be moved from one degree of glory to another by the power of your Spirit and in the name of your Son. Amen. Okay. Thank you for having me. Um, We are in um, a sermon series through the New Testament book of Galatians at the moment. Pete started us very well last week looking at Galatians chapter 1. He preached through the whole thing. Um, He's been preaching a bit longer than I have, so I'm just going to focus on one verse or two in uh, Galatians 2. But I'm going to be reading through the whole of Galatians 1 and 2 because the the big picture story that Galatians is about is important to understand to understand where we go in Galatians 2. So if you've got a Bible, if you could find Galatians, that would be great. Just to give you a bit of background, um, Galatia, which is the region where the churches were located that this letter is written to, is uh, in the central area of modern-day Turkey. So uh, Istanbul has a big football team in it, Galatasaray. That Galata at the beginning comes from Galatia. It's the same. That's why it's called that name. It's because of that region. Isn't that interesting? I found that out a couple of weeks ago. Um, the reason it's called Galatia is because of the historic people groups that lived there. So about a 1,000 years or so before this letter was written, um, the ancient Gauls from France, so the pagan Celts had kind of moved southeast into Turkey, and then the ancient Greeks took it over a couple of hundred years before um, this letter was written. But they didn't kick the Gauls out, they kind of interbred with them, and it became a very multicultural mixed pot. That's where Galatia comes from, Gal from Gaul. When the ancient Romans took it over, then Livy, who's an ancient Roman historian, described the people living there as being Gallo-Grecians, that they actually, they, it wasn't like they were Gauls and Greeks, they were one people group, but the Romans liked to keep themselves separate. And because of the Roman Empire, then there was this thing in place called the Pax Romana, which I'm sure many of you will have heard of, which meant that you were able to travel freely around the Roman Empire, which attracted people from all over the place, including obviously Jews who were just down in Israel. The Jews also liked to keep themselves separate. The Romans kept themselves separate because they felt that they were more important than everybody else because they were in control. The Jews kept themselves separate because they were the people of God and liked to keep themselves segregated from the rest of society because they were clean and the rest of society was unclean. Now, historically, if you look at Judaism, uh, there was one particular thing that Jews did which Gentiles, that is non-Jews, didn't do, and that is they got circumcised. And they linked that to being the people of God so much that if you go through the Old Testament looking at that word, you discover that by the end of the Old Testament, the words circumcised and uncircumcised are used to describe Jews and Gentiles because that's how they got their uh, identity from. They were the people of God because they were the circumcised and the uh, non-Jews, the Gentiles, were uncircumcised. 
What this meant was that when Jesus came and preached the good news in Jerusalem and Judea, which was primarily a Jewish region, what they heard was that you can enter the kingdom of God by grace simply through faith in Jesus Christ. But they added onto that their cultural understanding, which was that we're already circumcised and therefore we're part of the people of God because of both of these things. So when they then moved up to establish the church in Galatia, they brought that teaching with them and started telling the Gentiles that they needed to be circumcised in order to be considered fully part of the people of God. And Paul wrote a six-chapter-long letter to tell them, you don't need to do that. That's the whole point of the letter. is six chapters about the good news is of grace, not getting circumcised. So once you understand that, then suddenly the whole of Galatians just becomes this massive attack at you don't need to get circumcised. The way that Pete put it last week was Jesus plus nothing is everything. And so with that in mind, we're going to go through Galatians chapter 1 and chapter 2 together. So Galatians 1 verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age from among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Yet, when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia, then returned again to Damascus. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. And I saw none of the other apostles except for James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ Jesus. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Yet even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. 
Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality, those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that the person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified through faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant to sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Here's the big idea. The good news is of grace and not works. Jesus plus nothing is everything. This means if you're circumcised or uncircumcised, so long as you have faith in Jesus Christ, that's all that matters. You could have prayed for two hours every single day of your entire life or never said a single prayer in your entire life and your faith in Jesus Christ is all that matters. You could have stayed a virgin right up until your wedding night or you could have slept with every single person you've met and it makes no difference as long as you've got faith in Christ because that's the only thing that matters. Jesus has done it all. We have done nothing to contribute to our salvation. Now, if Jesus plus nothing is everything, that's an equation which has got two halves. God gives the Jesus half, and we give nothing. Nothing. And that nothing is important. It's not Jesus plus nothing and uh, whatever you want to do if you can put some effort in. No, it must be nothing. It must be, because if we're adding things, then it shows that our faith isn't properly in Christ. It's in Christ plus a little bit. This means we've got to stop trying to be good. Because if it's got to be nothing, then we've got to stop trying. Think about it. If you're searching for a job and you're filling out a CV and making it so that it looks perfect and you're applying for hundreds of jobs and you're not getting anywhere, you're on the phone walking down Ealing Broadway just explaining to your friend, I 
looking for a job, I can't find one, and someone overhears your conversation and just says, hey, I'll give you a job. I'm looking for somebody to work for me anyway. You've now got a job. What you then don't do is go home and start working on your CV to make it better. You've got a job. It's a waste of effort, and it isn't going to help you at all. You've already got the job. It isn't doing anything. Putting effort in when we're required to not put effort in is the wrong thing to do. So we must stop trying. Now, the Bible's conclusion on this is the one that probably in your mind is going through thinking, this doesn't lead me to where I think that Christians are meant to live. If you read Romans, um, I'm not going to go through all of that, but the first five chapters um, preach the, the good news, and it lands Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. And it's the Apostle Paul, same person who wrote Galatians, and he said, what then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, he's gone through five chapters of developing it and understanding it and then draws his conclusion and says, okay, with all of this in mind, are we then meant to keep on sinning so that grace can keep being poured out to us? It's obviously a natural conclusion to draw. But he answers the question and says, certainly not. And it's the same in Galatians chapter 2. In verse 19, he said, I died to the law so that I might be free to sin in any way I want. No, no, that's not where he went. But it seems odd where he goes. He says, I died to the law so that I might live to God. But didn't God give the law? See, we've got laws in the UK, haven't we? The government gives the laws. And if we were given a particular pardon, you don't have to keep the law. If we were then to go out and say, I have been given a pardon so that I'm free from the law. I don't need to keep the law so that I might live according to the way the government wants me to. Somebody would stop you and say, no, that's an illogical conclusion to draw. That's the wrong thing to do. You've been free from the law so that you can break it if you want. That's, that's what it means. But what Paul says is, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Do you see that that is not a logical thing to say? Now, I'm not saying the Bible's wrong. The Bible's right. But it doesn't, that's not the logical conclusion that we would draw. But thankfully, Paul moves on to verse 20, which is very exciting. Verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. So it's a bit like uh, Superman and Clark Kent. If Clark Kent is walking across the road and sees that a bus is about to run over a small child, Clark Kent goes and stops it. Now, did Superman stop the bus? Yeah. But if anyone looked at it, they'd see it was Clark Kent that did it. I tried to look on the internet for a picture of Clark Kent kind of pulling open his shirt and with the Superman thing, and there isn't an image of that that I could find on the internet. That's ridiculous, isn't it? So I just had to go for these. Um, th that's me. Yeah, yeah. This was on my stag do. Um, so, but you get the image anyway. So what Paul is saying is, he said, I died to the law so that I might live to God. And then immediately says, I've been crucified with Christ. So he said, I died to the law. I was crucified with Christ. You see that that's the same. So that I might live to God. And then he said, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Do you see that that's the parallel? So I've been crucified with Christ, I died to the law, so that I might live to God, but it's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. 
So the way that I live to God is actually Christ living in me. Now that sounds a very natural conclusion from it. If I've died to the law, and I have died with Christ, and it's Christ that was risen to new life, and it's him who lives through me, then of course I might live to God. That's the way that it works. What Paul is basically saying here is, the guy who you heard about in chapter 1, he said, you heard of my former life in Judaism. That's not my life anymore. The guy who used to persecute the church is dead. And the guy that you see alive in you now, in front of you, is actually Christ living in me. I'm in, in new life. When he wrote to the Corinthians, then he said, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. Behold, the new has come. There is an old life that we have, and if you're a Christian, then you have died, and Christ is now alive in you. So we definitely ought to stop trying, because a corpse can't try harder. If somebody is dead, they can't try. That's one of the characteristics of being dead. If you see somebody trying, you can pretty much conclude they're alive. So for us to then say, well, I need to try harder, is to say, I'm trying to raise the dead to life. Wouldn't that? That's the wrong thing to do. Jesus has already been risen to life, and he wants to live in us. The idea is to not try harder and let Jesus live through us. The idea is that we start by grace, and therefore we must continue by grace. Later on in Galatians, Paul goes on to write, um, if we, having begun by the Spirit, am I now being perfected by the flesh? So I worked through the flesh my entire life, couldn't get anywhere, was saved through grace, and now suddenly I have to work? That's, it doesn't work. I couldn't do it on my own, so I need his help. I needed it at salvation. I need it every day now. Just saying, I, I've heard people say, oh, well, grace is something that's kind of bread and milk for Christians, but actually when you move on to the meat, then it's about how you live your life and achieve your goals. And No, grace is everything. Jesus plus nothing is everything. Not just at salvation, every single day of our lives. Now this sounds almost too easy, doesn't it? Just stop trying and just let our life be perfect. Um, well, look at the language that he uses. He says, I died to the law. Now Paul doesn't mind repeating himself. Did you notice that thing about justification not by works of the law, but through faith in Christ, and he just goes round and round. He doesn't mind repeating himself, but he doesn't say, I died with Christ. He said, I was crucified with Christ. Crucifixion is not a pleasant death. He didn't choose that word by accident. Crucifixion is slow, painful, tortuous, brutal. And if you're a Christian, then you will know that the experience of leaving your old life behind and living a new life in Christ isn't an easy thing. It is hard. Sin that has been addictive before, those same temptations are still there, and we're used to doing them the way that we, used, that we always have done. And it is hard to move on. It's painful. It's a slow process. But it definitely is simple. It's quite easy to spot where Wally is in that picture. So it's simple, but it isn't easy. And I want to look at three particular scenarios, um, how this works out in our lives, which I hope will help you. So did I put some water? Cheers. I've no idea where that's gone now. So scenario one is habitual sin. Christians don't just 
pray a prayer one day and then suddenly the next day live their entire lives perfectly, even though that power is available to us. There are sins which are addictive and have pulled us down our entire life and keep on plaguing us today. We're tempted in the same ways and each of us has got our own weak spots that we get hit with temptation in different ways. But we can use this concept that we have died and that Christ is now alive in me to understand how to battle those temptations. We already know stop trying doesn't mean keep on sinning. Stop trying means that we ought to stop trying to fight it. You see, it's hard to fight temptation. It's hard to keep on going like that. So we need to stop trying to fight. And that doesn't mean that we kind of give in to allow temptation to overtake us, that we will give in to sin. But what it means is that in order for us to give in to sin, we actually need to raise the dead to life. And that's harder work than we probably give it credit for. See, if you think about it, the temptation that we get comes from external sources, except the desire to follow that temptation. Who does that come from? Is it from us or from Jesus? Well, it's not from Jesus. Jesus was tempted in every way and yet never sinned. So he doesn't have that in him. It's in us. So if we have those desires to be sinful, then it's because we're raising our old self back to life. But that is dead. That means that sin requires effort. You never sin by not doing anything. Sin is always something that we put effort in. It's something that's active. The answer, therefore, is that if we are being bombarded by temptation, and it's temptation that we are used to being bombarded with and that we have given up to a lot in the past, is to stop trying to fight it and not to give in to it, but to rest in Jesus and allow him to fight it on our behalf. And he's already won that battle. Here's the conclusion. Beating sin required God to die. That means that it was a big foe to conquer. And if we try to beat it ourselves, we're not up to the task. So we need to stop because we will lose. We need to stop trying to fight sin. And when we go bad with that temptation, then we stop trying and we rest in Jesus. So we forcefully turn our gaze to him. He will fight it for us. Here's another one. These are going to get harder and harder. That one was straightforward, actually. This one is harder. And it's the word productivity. Now, I quite like productivity. If you're part of the internet generation, you might call it life hacking. If you're part of a group of people who were brought up in Christianity and going to church, then you might call it being fruitful in your ministry. And we're in church, so I'll use that one. It's, it's a good desire, isn't it, to want our ministry to be fruitful. So we feel like God has given me particular things to do, and I want to do them to the best of my ability so that God gets the most glory. What a great um, attitude to have. But I've just been telling us that we ought to be stopping trying. So how does that work? Let me ask you a bit of a trick question. What would have been a better sermon this morning if I had spent hundreds of hours researching and preparing and studying and practicing and relying on my own abilities and brought a message, or if I didn't do any research at all, didn't do any sort of study, didn't do any preparation, just turned up this morning and entirely relied on Jesus to preach his message through me, what would give us the best result? Let's take a verse. A, a verse? Wow, I'm a Christian, aren't I? Let's take a vote. Okay. <laughs> Who thinks the first one, relying on my own ability? No one's brave enough. Who's the second? Okay, a couple and a couple of kind of half. Uh, it's probably going to be that one, isn't it? 
The answer is, it's a trick question. So there's no real right answer to that question. The answer sort of would be two, strictly speaking. But actually, all of the abilities that I have, all of the gifts have come from God by his grace. Any motivation that I have to prepare for it has been given to me by him, by his grace. Any time that I have that is available for me to prepare for it is all come from him. Relying on my own ability means that the output, the quality of the sermon that you would get would be the same as if you rolled a coffin in and just put that up. Now, I'd probably make a lot more noise than a coffin, except the quality of the output would be exactly the same because I am dead. Which means that any time that we are trying to be productive, we, the only way that we can do it to the glory of Jesus is to rely on his grace and what he has given to us. And that includes our time, it includes our motivation, everything comes from him. None of it comes from us. If we end up relying on ourselves, we're just going to end up messing it up. And people do, don't they? Acts chapter 20, 17 and verse 25. I think it's Paul that's preaching here actually he says this the god who oh sorry i'm starting 24 the god who made the world and everything in it being lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything it's god that gives us even life and breath and all of our abilities and everything that we have so for us then to think oh well i'm going to be working hard so that i can be faithful with what God has given to me is the wrong attitude to have. We need to ask him for more of his grace so that we can be faithful with what he's given to us already. It isn't grace start and then we finish. It's grace starts, grace completes, grace finishes. God does not need my help. He doesn't need any of our help. If he wants, a coffin could come in here, say nothing. If God wants you to hear something, you're going to hear it, whether he says it or not. So I can stand here, I don't know how well I'm preaching, it's quite difficult to judge that until I listen to it back, but if God wants you to hear something, you're going to hear it whether I try and do that or not, because he's in control. So all I can do is rest on his grace, that's all any of us can do. Final scenario, that's going quite quickly this isn't it? Um, Another good attitude that we have is the desire to thank God for what he has done. And we say this as Christians quite a lot, don't we? I, you know, I just want to, I just want to thank God. You know, let's just thank God through the songs that we sing. I, I just want to give something back to Him, so I thank Him by putting my money in the pot. I just want to give something back, so I offer some time. I, let's just leave that for a moment. And just let me give you a little bit of an analogy. Imagine that I start to drink. The kids have just driven me to it, and <laughs> I, and eventually it becomes such a problem. I become an alcoholic and have to get checked into rehab. Now, Emmanuel is a very kind man and has lots more money than I do and says, Sam, I'm going to pay for you to go to a private rehab clinic and do my whole course there and come out better. Now, I want to say thank you to Emmanuel. Is an appropriate way of thanking Emmanuel for me to throw a big beer party? No, that's completely inappropriate. So is it not inappropriate for us to think that God has given us grace and I'm going to therefore thank him by doing good work. He's released us from that in the first place. Our efforts are not going to thank God, they're throwing the gift he's given us back in his face. That's a hard one to get your head around, isn't it? The answer is stop trying anyway. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 10, 
I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to go to verse 9. This is Paul again. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Do you hear that? I worked harder than any of them, but it wasn't me. Working really, really hard isn't me. It's Jesus working through me. If Paul had relied on his own ability, he would have ended up making all kinds of mistakes. He knew the Old Testament law so well that he would have probably ended up falling back into his default position where all his training had come from. John Piper said good deeds. John Piper, by the way, is a uh, not church leader anymore, preacher, an author based in Minneapolis in America. He said good deeds do not pay back grace. They borrow more grace. It's grace all the way. We never get away from it. So here's the conclusion. Jesus plus nothing is everything. Is not just some equation that we can preach so that we respond and become a Christian. It's not a one-time thing. It's an every moment of every day of our entire life thing and the whole of eternity. Everything that we do is only powered by grace and the only way that we can do it is by grace. So um, we're going to respond together by singing probably loads of songs. Man, I finished quite early, aren't I? Um, but as individuals, there, there are particular people I want to just kind of uh, call out this morning in, um, in terms of where you're at in your life. The first person is this, that you have never heard the message of grace properly like that before. This idea of stopping trying and suddenly that gets you justified before God is completely foreign. You've never really heard it. Um, now this may work itself out in your life in two ways. It might be that you are very aware of your own sin and that you can't possibly understand that God would actually accept you. Well, the message for you this morning is clear. It's not because of what you've done right or wrong. It's because of what Jesus has done, and that was all right. So if you rely on him, you've got nothing to worry about. And he will accept you. It doesn't matter who you are, where you've come from. His grace is for you right now today. It might work itself out in that you actually are a good person and that you've lived your life being good and you've kept all the rules and that you've come to an understanding, maybe you haven't actively said it, except your understanding is that you're relying on the fact that you're a good person, most people you know aren't as good as you, you, you know, and that you've kind of come to a position where you're relying on that. And the message for you specifically this morning is, no, you're not good enough, and if you're relying on that, then you're, you're going the wrong way. It's all about what Jesus has already done for you. And you need this morning to put your faith in him because justification is not by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what it comes down to. Um, And then there are obviously the three particular people. Maybe it's that you are caught in habitual sin, um, that you've been plagued with temptation on a particular issue for a long, long time. Um, and you're frustrated with it, and you've been trying as hard as you can, you're trying to put up measures to stop yourself, to prevent yourself from seeing this temptation, or whatever it is, and that you've always wanted to be free from it. This morning, I believe it's for some people, this message is going to be the thing that unlocks that freedom by simply resting in Jesus and not through working hard to fight it. Um, the second set are people who are trying to help God out by using their gifts to his glory, and to have just kind of been working really hard to try and be as effective and efficient as possible, 
message to you this morning is don't try and do it on your own. Jesus um, has already done it all for you. It's all grace. It's only through relying on him that you're going to be faithful. And finally, uh, people who have uh, found that you are trying to thank God through good works, through giving him stuff. Uh, I think God wants to free you from this this morning. The big word is relax. We don't need to try hard. In fact, it's bad for us to try hard. We've got to stop trying and relax in him. That's the big message. I thought it was great. I don't know this guy's name, but you prayed out this morning, and that was essentially what it was. You know, you can't love on your own, and so you rely on Jesus, and he'll show you how to love. That's it. It's, everything is grace. If we stop relying on grace, then we're losing the message which makes our message Christian. If you go to a mosque and they'll tell you how to live a good life, and they'll probably preach it very, very well, but they'll not have grace, because grace is uniquely Christian. I think I'm going to leave it there. So if we, we will respond through singing together. If there are particular things that you've heard, maybe there's those things that I specifically named. Maybe it's something else that you heard this morning at some point and you would like to particularly be prayed for to, um, you know, just to have somebody to hold you accountable and to pray for it so that um, you feel that you've kind of done something. Then please come to the front and somebody um, who is the same gender as you will pray for you um, that you might receive that grace. How about I quickly pray and then I'll hand over to Rich. Father, we thank you so much for your grace. You are more wonderful than we can possibly imagine. Your generosity to us is so much more than we deserve. And it isn't just something that kind of starts us off into being Christians. It's something that sustains us every single day of our life. Your mercies are new every morning. So, Father, we glorify you and we ask that would you change our hearts today? Spirit, fill us up, we ask, to the glory of your name. Amen.